You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to the letter of Galatians, we are continuing on as Kyle just mentioned and prayed for in our series through this wonderful, wonderful letter. We're entire, we, we've called this series Freedom in Christ, the Glorious Gospel of Galatians. And last time we were here was two weeks ago, the Sunday before Easter, and last time we were here, we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Today, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. But before we read that passage, I actually want to read chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And the reason I want to do this has to do with the fact that today's text is connected to the events described in chapter 2, 11 through 14. So think of today as part two. So we looked at a text two weeks ago in chapter two, verses 11 through 14. And today we're looking at the second half of this story. Church, I want to invite you now to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired and authoritative word. But when Cephas, also known as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision part. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, also known as Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, look here at the end of verse 14. Notice what's happening here at the end of this verse. Paul shared with the church in Galatia what he said to Peter when he publicly confronted him. So we're told in verses 11 through 13 about this situation that happened and that Paul was concerned about this situation, so concerned that he felt like he needed to publicly address Peter, not only for Peter's sake, but for the sake of the church. And then he tells us in verse 14 what he said to Peter. And I want you to pay attention now to the flow of thought From the end of verse 14, as I read now our text for this morning into 15 through 21, because it's all connected. So let me begin at the end of verse 14 and we'll continue on reading. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I build up what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see what happens here at the, in verses 15 through 21. It appears that Paul continued to share with the church in Galatia the fuller argument he made among those in Antioch. But he didn't just share this with them just so that they would know about this situation. He did it for their benefit. And I believe as we listen in and we look carefully at what Paul said, not only to the church in Antioch, but to this church in Galatia, we too will benefit. So our outline for this morning, if you were to break this text down, there there are three areas we could break this text down into. Verses 15 through 16, being justified in Christ. 17 through 20, living a crucified life. And verse 21, nullifying the work of Christ. So that's our outline for this morning. Let's begin with this first point, being justified in Christ, verses 15 through 16. And let me just read these two verses again because they're so important in what Paul was saying, not only to Peter and those in Antioch, but to these in Galatia he's writing. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now the word justification I don't know if you see it used here in verse 16. It actually appears three times in verse 16. And this is the first time we see this word justification appear in the letter of Galatians. It it is used here in chapter 2, verse 16 for the first time, and it's used three times. Now, here's what I want us to be aware of at the outset. Justification by faith in Christ is a very important doctrinal doctrinal concept that has huge implications for the Christian life. And it is a prominent theme in all of Paul's letters, especially here in Galatians. But because I know we're going to come back to this topic of justification later on in chapter 3, for now, I will only share a few thoughts about justification. I don't feel like I have to explain it fully this morning because it's going to be unpacked more 
as we go. But I do want to explain it enough so that we all know what we're talking about by the use of this word or by this phrase. So here, here's what justification is. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. And both of those are legal terms. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. And both of those have to, be, have to do with a verdict being pronounced. And here in Galatians, this word justification is being used in reference to God. You see, to be justified before God means that we are accepted before God instead of punished by Him because of our guilt. That's what it means by justification. To be justified before God means we are accepted before God instead of punished by Him because of our guilt. You see, justification by faith in Christ refers to the way we are treated by God because of our faith in Jesus. You see, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, we, if we've placed our faith in Christ, we're treated as if we were perfectly righteous and worthy of God's acceptance even though in actuality we are guilty and should be condemned. That's what justification by faith is. We are treated by God as if we were perfectly righteous and worthy of God's acceptance, even though in reality we are guilty and should be condemned. So how can that be? How can God treat us that way? How can he treat us as if we're perfectly righteous and worthy of acceptance, though we are guilty? Well, in another letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says this, nothing captures the heart and the essence and the beauty of justification by faith better than this verse. For our sake, He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about what that verse just said. It speaks of a great exchange. He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. What does that mean? If He knew no sin, how could He become sin? It means our sin was counted to Him And His righteousness was credited to us. That's the great exchange of justification. Jesus was given what we deserve. And therefore, we're treated as if we're righteous because of what who Jesus is and what He had done. Now, with this explanation in mind, look look back with me now. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 of Galatians. And I want to just draw our attention to the word we at the beginning of verse 15. And then we see it again in verse 16. Paul appears to be speaking to Peter and those like him in Antioch. That's where we that's why I wanted to draw attention to that word we. It appears that the conversation we just heard earlier in verse 14, he's addressing Peter and those in Antioch who are showing this hypocrisy. It appears he's still talking to them. And he's, he's talking to those who refuse to have fellowship with Gentiles, even though they would reject the idea that Gentiles have to keep the Mosaic law in order to be justified before God. 
In other words, those that he's addressing, their actions betrayed their doctrine. If you were to ask him, do you believe these Gentiles who you've gotten up and moved away from and are not having the kind of fellowship with you should as fellow believers, do you believe they have to keep the Mosaic law in order to be justified with God? Absolutely not. But your actions are saying that. And what Paul's doing here in 15 and 16 is he's unpacking why their, why their actions are not in step with the gospel they profess to believe. So look what he says in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, don't let Paul's language throw you off. This is all he's saying. He's using the word sinner in a very specific way. He's using it the way his opponents are using it. He's not actually calling himself a sinner. And he's not calling Gentile sinners in some superior way. Here's basically what he's saying. We as Jews have sought to follow the Mosaic law, unlike non-Jews who disregard the law of God. So he's just making a point. We aren't like, as Jews, we're not like Gentiles. We, we keep the law. We seek to keep the law. We're unlike those who have no regard for the law of God. However, look at verse six or 16, the beginning. Yet, though that's true of us, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So Paul says, even though this is true, we, we are those who grew up understanding the importance of the law and seeking to follow the law, unlike Gentiles. Here's what we've come to realize. That as Jews or as Gentiles, our right standing with God is found in our faith in Christ. We share the same theology of justification by faith in Christ. Christ and and we reject any message that proclaims that people are justified by works of the law. But then Paul goes on to say the next this this next thing in verse 16. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So you see what Paul just said in the beginning of verse 16? He just said we, 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 we hold these truths about justification. And then he goes one step further. He says, it's not just doctrinal truths we hold to. We, we've put our own faith in this. We've put our faith in Jesus. We who once, Paul, Peter, many other Jews, once who were like our opponents, who put all of our eggs in the basket of law keeping, we now have put all our faith in Jesus Christ in order to be right with God. And why was that? Why did a man like Paul, who spent his whole life believing that law-keeping was the way to be right with God, why would he now put his faith in Jesus Christ? Well, we're told the end of verse 16. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is basically saying, here's why I gave up on that idea. It's futile. No one can do enough to ever be right with God apart from Jesus Christ. Let me see to illustrate, I think the point that, that Paul is making here, and I think that this, this 
illustration will hopefully help us understand what, what Paul was addressing then in hopes it will show us this is still a common struggle today. Now, in the same way that justification is a major theme in Galatians, another word you're going to see a time and time again, especially in chapter 3 and chapter 4, you're going to keep hearing the word law used, the law of God, the law of God. So justification and the law of God are going to be two themes that are going to keep coming up in this passage. Well, to borrow an analogy I heard from someone else, think of the law of God like this. The law of God are like railroad tracks. Railroad tracks don't make the train move, but they do help guide the direction of the train. You see, the law of God is like that. The law of God is like these railroad tracks. They, they, they help guide God's people so that they know how to obey Him and how to live a meaningful life. Imagine if there was no law and you just said, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that look like? So the law is like those railroad tracks. They're helped to, to guide. They're helped to give direction so we know how to obey God and live a meaningful life. But you see, the problem with Paul's opponents is that they were taking the railroad tracks of God's law and they had turned them into a ladder. They used the law not as a, as a guide to guide us to how to follow God, but as a means of getting to God. That's the mistake they made. They turned the railroad tracks of the law into a ladder, hoping to do enough good to please God. But hear this. And Paul's going to make this point many, many more times before this letter is done. That was never God's purpose for the law. God never gave the law of God for that reason. If this has been your view as you think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, then, then I pray that Galatians will just help us have a better informed view of all of Scripture. I think often we can view the Old Testament like this. The Old Testament is all about law. God watched long enough. Years and years and years went by. There was no law. And, and God said, okay, this is not going to work. I'm going to send Jesus. The law was never meant to save. It was never meant to be a ladder. God's plan was always for the law to guide and most importantly to guide people to their need for a Savior. But the opponents, those who were opposed to Peter and Paul and this whole message of Christ, they had turned the law into a ladder. And Paul is saying, only Jesus can justify us before God. Not the law, only Jesus. Now that brings us to now our second point, living a crucified life. It's like Paul makes this important claim in verses 15 through 16, and now he's got to unpack some, some truths. If, if you say that, Paul, if you say that it's not by works of the law people are justified, but, but through faith in Jesus Christ, well, we've got a few questions for you. I, I can think of some things that are going to come to mind, and you're going to have to unpack a little bit more, and that's what Paul's doing here. So if you're wondering what's this whole section about? Paul's now saying, okay, if those things that I just said are true, then I have to be able to explain a few things. And in verse 17, Paul appears to be dealing with an objection to this statement that he just made at the end of verse 16. 
that no one can be justified apart from the works of the law, but people can only be justified through Christ. I think there's a real possibility that what Paul's doing here, we, we can't say for certain, but I think there's a real possibility that he's addressing some of the charges that had been elevated against Peter and those who opposed the gospel. Remember, this group from Jerusalem comes. They're not Christians. They come from Jerusalem and they're bringing this message. Persecution has most likely increased because they hear what Peter and other Jews who are now claiming Christ are doing and they're concerned and they're probably bringing some charges against Peter and people like this. And this is some of the things they possibly could be saying. Now, remember, anytime we're reading a letter like this, it's a one sided conversation. We're eavesdropping, if you will. But by listening carefully to what Paul says, we, 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 we possibly can know what might have been said by the opposite side of the conversation. Even though we don't hear their response, by listening carefully to what Paul says, we can kind of piece together what they may be saying. So what is the charge they may be leveling against Peter and those like him? They could be saying something like this. If being justified in Christ allows you to no longer follow dietary laws and to eat with Gentiles, which we would consider to be sinful, doesn't that make Christ responsible for your sinful actions? That appears to be what they're, they're saying. It's like Paul makes this claim in 15 and 16, and he can almost hear or see that hand go up. <laughs> I hear you, Paul, but I have a question. We would think you sitting and not following all the dietary laws is sinful, so therefore you're saying Christ is responsible for your sin? Paul's going to have to answer objections like that. And that's exactly what he does. But, but, but in order to do that, he admits two things before he denies the main point of their objection. Notice the two things he admits. The first thing he clearly admits in verse 17 is this. He admits that he and Peter, along with other Jewish Christians, have found their right standing with God in Christ alone. Look at verse 17. But... If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So the first thing Paul wants everyone to know is the only reason you're making this objection is because you're getting one thing really, really right. And we want to raise our hand and say yes and amen. Give us the name tag. Put us in that category. We are those who believe that justification is by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Yes, that is us. Amen, that is us. Second thing Paul admits to is that because of justification before God, they appear to be sinners if you're using the term that the opponents are using. They're saying, yeah, if you say we must follow the dietary laws and we say in Christ we don't, then according to your standards, we are sinners, guilty. We, we don't do those things. And Christ does not require that we do those things. So if that is your idea of sin, we are sinners. We're guilty as charged. Paul admits that they're not following the dietary laws. I think they would be labeled 
Paul and Peter and other Jewish Christians would have been labeled by these opponents as lawless. But Paul answers this objection, this question. Is Christ responsible for their perceived sinful actions of eating unclean food? He answers it with an emphatic no. No, Christ is not responsible for our sin. You perceive that what we're doing is sinful, but it's not sinful. And Christ is not responsible for what we have done that you consider sin. Believing in Christ brings freedom, not lawlessness. That's the point Paul's making. He's saying, you see us as lawless. We're not lawless, but we are free. And there's a difference between freedom. Sometimes what we call freedom in Christ is really lawlessness. And sometimes we cannot see the difference. But Paul is saying, oh, we're free men. You see us as lawless. But we are not lawless at all. We, we, we love the law of God. But we are free men. Then he goes on in verse 18 through 19 just to unpack this thought more. Notice both of these verses begin with the word for. Pointing back to what Paul just said. Verse 18 and 19. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What point is Paul making here? Well, in verse 18, he's making this point. He's saying, I will not seek to build up what I've worked so hard to tear down for so many years. Paul's saying, if, if you're wanting me to come along and to, to build up something that I have spent now years of my life trying to undo from my own background, from my own heritage, then, then you're, you're crazy <laughs> to put words in his mouth. You, I, I am not going to do it. I'm not going to turn around and build up what I've been tearing down. What is it that Paul's saying he's not going to build up, but he's been tearing down? It's not the law itself. The law is from God. The law is good. What has Paul been working so hard to tear down? He's been working so hard to tear down the latter mentality that he had bought into for so long himself. Paul had spent years and years and years of his life even persecuted Christians because he bought into this latter mentality. The law is like a ladder that helps us get to God. The more we do, the closer we are to God. That's how we get to God. Be a good law keeper. And Paul said, when I came to know Jesus, I realized that was a false standard. And I've been working tirelessly to tear down that mentality. The last thing I'm going to do is turn around and build that up. He then says, to do so would be transgression. And he uses that word transgression because he used sin for his opponents to speak of stuff that wasn't sinful. Now he's saying, to have done that to actually ask people to treat the law like it was a ladder, that would be wrong before God. Sitting with Gentiles eating diet, certain foods you find sinful, that's not wrong before God. Let's be clear what's wrong before God. What you're talking about and what you want me to buy into. That the law is like a ladder. It is not. And I will not build up what I've worked so hard to tear down. And in verse 19... He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What Paul is saying here is that his understanding of the law has now been informed by the gospel. 
For so many years, he, he had the law, but he didn't have the spectacle of the gospel. And now he has the gospel to be able to see clearly. To be able to understand the law. And because he now has the gospel lenses to view the law, it's allowed him to die to his old ways of ladder climbing. And now, he is more alive to God than ever. That's the point he's making. Because of the gospel, Paul now looks back at the law and says, oh man, I saw that all wrong. The law is not a ladder. The law is, has, has put me to death. But now I'm more alive than I've ever been. Can I ask you a few questions before we move on? Do you believe that keeping God's law and His commandments makes Him love you more? Do you believe that? That if you keep God's law and His commandments, that makes Him love you more? Do you believe when you're struggling with patterns of sin in your life, God sees you differently than when you're pursuing godliness? See, I ask these questions because one of the things I don't ever want to assume is that everyone here present this morning doesn't struggle with viewing God's law as a ladder that gets them closer to God. Many people believe that. Many people have grown up into churches believing that. Maybe they wouldn't say it the way I just said it. But often, even if we won't say it with our mouth, do we not often live like that? If I'm obedient, God must be really happy with me. When I'm disobedient, God must not look at me in the same way. Look at verse 20 now. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. He's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at the first part of this verse. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. That, that's a radical claim Paul's making here. He's saying, I've been crucified with Christ, meaning my, my spiritual identity is now being found in Christ. Through the death of Christ, I have died to myself. Now Jesus is in me and at work in me. Paul is making a radical claim here. Let's, let's see this. By him saying, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul is stating that in essence, he's rejecting any thought that his, his Jewish status, his religious background, his moral lifestyle, or his spiritual zeal were sufficient source of his justification before God. That's what Paul's saying when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Read between the lines. He's basically saying, all the things I once held dear and thought this makes me right with God, I now count as a loss. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3? Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. 
Paul tells his story. What he used to boast in. And now listen to how he then reframes his story now that he's come to Christ. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Listen to this list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on Faith. That's what Paul means when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. He's basically saying all my old ways, all the things I would have said, this is my spiritual resume. He's saying, I have ripped that up. I have thrown it away. This is not what I put my hope in and my stock in. And here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul is claiming that even though he had to die to himself when he accepted Jesus' death on the cross for him, He's now alive through Christ. Friends, this is what it means to receive Jesus as Savior and to trust Him as the only means of justification before God. You see, a Christian is one who accepts and announces his inability to do what it takes to be right with God. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is like Paul who says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's what a Christian is. They're one who is accepted and announces his inability to do what it takes to be right with God. Now, here's why I mention that, because I don't think that most people who are unfamiliar with with what we do on Sunday mornings and the songs we've been singing, that's not what most people think about Christians. Most people think that Christianity is about moral and spiritual superiority. That we're a people that are all about our righteousness, all about being good people, all about living good lives, looking down on those who don't. And if you say, I don't think that's how people view us, then you need to talk to a few more people. (laughs) Because they do. And yet, the opposite is true. We are not people who come in here on Sunday morning beating our chest, singing songs of how great we are, how morally superior we are, how spiritually in tune we are. To be a Christian, we must say with the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. You know what that means? There's nothing in me that I could ever do that would make me right with God. I am unrighteous. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That's why we sing the songs we do on Sunday mornings. That's why we sing songs this morning about us being prone to wonder and and about us being sinners. Because we're not people who are morally superior. We're not people who think we have it all together. We're the first people who, who loudly say, we don't have it all together. We've been crucified with Christ. We've placed our faith in Jesus. 
See, placing faith in Jesus is a moment of surrender. That's what Paul's saying here in the second part of, of verse 20. That placing faith in Jesus is, is this moment of surrender. Look, look at the second half of this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, becoming a Christian is a moment of surrender. But so is being a Christian on a day-to-day basis. See, we don't just surrender to become a Christian. We surrender every day as Christians. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just we look back and say, yeah, there was that one time you know, I gave my life to Jesus. I told Him I can't be righteous. And now it's all about obedience and law-keeping and being a really good person and making sure I do all of these things. No, every day is the same as that day we put our faith in Jesus. We're, we're saying, there's nothing in me. I have died to my old ways. It is Christ and Christ alone who must do a work in me. See, we must continually live each day by placing our faith in Jesus who loved us and gave Himself for us. But let's be honest. The struggle to live every day in light of Christ and the cross is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do. Can we switch metaphors for a moment? Even if you're not tempted to turn the law of God into a ladder, how often are you and I tempted to easily turn Christian obedience into a performance treadmill? Maybe the, the latter metaphor doesn't work for you. But the performance treadmill, you get that. I get that. That's often what we live on, don't we? Though we claim justification by faith alone in Christ alone, we, we live on the performance treadmill. Can, can, you, can you relate to that feeling of low-grade guilt you have regularly? Because you think you've not done enough for God. And therefore you wonder if he see, how He sees you and how He relates to you. Do you, do you live with this sense of, of guilt? Because you're keenly aware of your sin and your sinful tendencies? Do you live with this sense of, of, of guilt, more guilt than grace because you're, you're aware of your fickle faith and your constant battle with unbelief? Or maybe it's spiritual apathy. You know the things of God matter, but you just don't really get all that excited about it. You wonder, there's no way God could look at me and be excited. I wouldn't be excited about me. Maybe for some, the fear of man makes you hesitant about being more bold in your faith. You know you ought to talk to your coworker. You all, you know you need to talk to your neighbor. You know that there's that lost family member. And every time you go to open your mouth, you just cower and you, you don't say anything. And you wonder, is God disappointed with me? My lack of courage and expressiveness? I like to think of the performance treadmill that sadly so many of us live on. I like to think of it as emotional slavery. It's emotional slavery. 
See, this describes how too many Christians live the Christian life feeling like we're always in God's debt. And therefore, we must do more to earn His favor. Listen carefully. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you are not in God's debt because the debt has already been paid in full and it wasn't by you and it wasn't by me. Jesus Christ paid our debts. We do not live as if we are indebted to God. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must live cross-centered lives, believing that Jesus loves us and that He gave Himself up for us and that we are justified before God through Christ alone. That brings us now to this last verse, which I'll say very little about. But it is such an important way to end. Our third point, nullifying the work of Christ. Verse 21, Paul closes with this statement. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Can I ask you to engage in a thought experiment as we close? If you were given the option to go back in time And to change the fate of Jesus so that He would not die on the cross for sinners, would you make that happen? If if God took a vote this morning and said, would you rather have law keeping over grace in order to be justified before God, how would you vote? But here's the surprising and convicting truth that we read in verse 21. Every time you and I climb on the ladder of commandments or we step onto the treadmill of performance, we're essentially acting like Christ did not die or worse, that it wasn't enough. See, I don't think anybody would have answered in here, oh yeah, if I could go back in time, I'd definitely not have Christ die on the cross for sinners. No one of us, none of us here would think that. But every time we get on that That treadmill of performance. We're basically saying, Jesus, get down from that cross. That's not necessary. It's definitely not sufficient. Thank you for your sacrificial work, but I've got it. That's essentially what we're saying. Maybe not with our lips, of course. But we're saying that by the way we relate to God. You know what we often communicate by the way we relate to God? Though we believe in justification by faith, we we, we communicate that we're slaves, not free. We live like slaves, thinking God's just demanding all these things of us. We do them, and He's turning around, He's like this taskmaster. He says, okay, well, that wasn't enough. Well, thanks for that, but now here's the next thing. We view God that way. You see, friends, Maybe we're not so different from Peter and the rest of the Jews in Antioch. It's easy to look at Peter and these guys and see their hypocrisy and kind of like, oh man, that was an epic fail. But friends, can't we too be hypocritical in our faith in Jesus? We confess justification by faith alone, but we live all day on the performance treadmill. I wonder how God views me. I had a good day. He must love me. Oh, man, I'm loved by God. 
had a horrible day, gave in to all the sins I thought I was done struggling with. God, God just must not see me the same. Isn't that how we often live? See, we're no different. We may profess doctrinal truths. We may rejoice on Sundays in the glorious reality of justification by faith, but we often live as if God was demanding something of us to do in order to be right with Him. So how do we keep from living like this? How do we keep from living like this? Well, I just want to mention one suggestion that's found right here in the text as we close. You know what those in Antioch needed to be confronted because of their hypocrisy? And do you know what those in Galatia needed who were in danger of apostasy? Two different groups, two different problems, both related to the gospel. Paul's writing to this church in Galatia that's in danger of apostasy to actually leave the gospel behind. And then he's writing to telling them a story of a time in Antioch when people weren't tempted to leave the gospel behind, but they were tempted to be hypocritical with the gospel. And do you, do you know what both groups needed? Both groups needed the same thing. They desperately needed to hear the gospel proclaimed and applied to their specific situation. Isn't that what Paul does? Both in Antioch and in Galatia, he, he brings the gospel to bear and he applies it to their specific situation. You see, being exposed to gospel preaching consistently is one of God's many safeguards. It's one of God's many safeguards which He has given as a gift to the church. It's meant to protect us. It's meant to correct us when we're not living in the freedom of Christ. So can I encourage us that we must not neglect this gracious means of grace from God. One of the reasons it's so important that we show up on Sunday mornings and we've got our Bibles open and we're listening and we're drinking from this well God has given. It, it, it protects us and it corrects us when we're just like those in Antioch and just like those in Galatia. And may we not think for a moment we're not like them and can't be tempted like them. That's why we need the letter of Galatians. To help us. Listen. Over the next few months, the letter of Galatians may feel really doctrinal and theological. We're going to get into the deep end of the pool. We're getting into the weeds. At times, you may be thinking, how is this applicable? Can I just end with this? The goal of all of Galatians is to help us live out Galatians 2.20. So as we're unpacking all these things in the weeks ahead, all of it is for this one end. That we could say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Let's pray. Father, would you take the truths that we've heard and would you write them on our hearts? And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has been viewing you in this way that your commands are like a ladder, Lord, I pray that they have heard the glorious truth of the gospel 
that it's only through the person and work of Jesus that anyone can be made right. And that this morning they would put their trust in Jesus and that they would be justified and that they would be changed. And Father, would you help us as those who will have put our faith in Jesus and with our mouths we profess the glorious, beautiful truth of justification by faith in Christ. But yet we often live as if we don't believe it. Lord, would you help us? Help us to see the error of that kind of thinking, that that doesn't come from you. That's the enemy. Lord, that you want us to walk in the freedom of Christ. Help us to be people who walk as free people. Not under the tyranny and the slavery of false guilt. Lord, would you remind us of what Jesus did each and every day. Help us to live in the good of it. We pray this in his name. Amen.